This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Strawberry shortcake and my little ponies. Sticker books and skipping ropes. Plaster Paris or playing cards with my grandpa. All of these things always placed a smile on my face and filled my heart full of happiness. As a kid, my favorite thing at any park was always the swings. At first sight, I would run straight for them and jump on without any questions. Standing on my tippy toes with my bum barely touching the seat. My skinny arms, will, and swollen knees were all that I needed to pump and glide myself high into the sky. As a little girl, I remember feeling like I was so close to touching the fluffy white clouds in the sky, just as my stomach did a little flip and I was suddenly swinging back in the opposite direction. My long blonde hair blowing in the breeze it rushed all around me, my eyes squinting closed from the bright sunshine as it colored more freckles on my nose. I was a kid full of laughter, curiosity, and kindness. Outside of the examining rooms, the OR visits, and hospital stays, I was just like any other little girl. By simply looking at me, nobody would ever have guessed the challenges that I had already faced or the hurdles that were still to come. My eyes to the average person looked completely normal. I've seen these old pictures several times over the years. When looking at the pictures of myself as a six-year-old little girl in kindergarten, when looking at these photos, I've always paid particular attention to my eyes. Why? Because they look normal, both of them. They were a warm emerald green color twinkling with matching pupils and snow-white scleras. I was wearing a red dress with white ruffles. A smile was on my face while my long blonde hair was neatly done, pulled half back with a matching red bow. It's really hard to believe that that picture-perfect little girl was peering back at the world just using a single eye. I'm Becky Zarr and this is a blind reality. Some of my earliest memories revolve around visiting various doctor's offices while my parents were trying to seek out a proper diagnosis for me. The helplessness that my mom and dad must have felt at that time must have been completely heartbreaking for them. Before we stumbled upon Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. Rowanchuk and finally got on the right path, I had already been seen by quite a few doctors and as a result, I had already had an array of various testing done. I recall my parents sharing a story with me from fairly early on. I was around the age of three, and I was getting my blood work done. And the story goes that my dad had come into the room with me to get my blood work drawn, while my mom and grandma waited anxiously for me in the waiting room. My mom recalls me bounding out of the door and into the waiting room, Tears were running down my cheeks while I stood there with my hands on my hips as I began to scold the lab tech. Sad and confused, I said to the lady, I'm not a bad girl and I wasn't mean to you. 
So why are you being mean to me? I then turned on my heels and melted into the waiting arms of my mom and grandma. There was obviously a lot of confusion for all of us early on. Being so young myself, it was hard for me to understand the reason for all of the concern. I knew that I had problems with my eyes, but initially, I had no idea the impact that this was going to have in my entire life. I knew that I couldn't see like everybody else, but to me, I could see just fine. Or at least, that's what I thought. One of my earliest memories that I have had to have been from when I was around the age of three or four. A strategy that they were trying at that time was to cover my good eye with a patch in hopes that they would strengthen my bad eye. So, one evening, I sat coloring at the living room coffee table when it was time to put the patch over my good eye. I hadn't completed coloring my picture though, so determined I decided to keep coloring with the patch on. I remember thinking this really wasn't that big of a deal and I can actually still see okay, so I continued. When it was time to remove the patch off of my good eye, I remember glancing down at my picture and feeling completely stunned. A feeling of devastation came over me that resonated straight to my core. My picture was completely ruined. There was crayon all over the page, outside the lines, and it looked nothing like I thought it did. My vision loss suddenly felt very real in my young mind and heart. I'm not sure why this memory still today is kind of hard for me to think about, but for some reason, it still catches my attention. I suppose it's probably the realness behind that moment and that now as an adult, I understand that a little piece of my childhood innocence at that time was washed away. By a young age, I had spent a lot of time at different doctor's offices. Most of the visits to the random doctors, I actually don't recall. I do, however, vividly remember sitting in Dr. Romanchuk's office. At this point, it had become a completely comfortable and familiar place for me. His gentle voice and calming nature made me feel completely at ease. He was one of only a small handful of people who actually called me by my real first name, Becky Lee. There was just something about him that allowed me to hop up onto his examining room chair with total comfort. Being so young myself, initially I had to sit in my dad's lap because I was too small for him to perform the ophthalmoscope exam while I sat in the chair myself. This amazing doctor had become a constant in our lives. And I remember I was probably around the age of five or so. I still hadn't entirely figured out this entire scenario of vision loss. But at that particular visit, I ended up having a fairly poor report. The vision in my good eye had notably dropped on the charts, and as a result, I wasn't able to read nearly as many letters. I remember feeling really disappointed. And I also recall coming up with my own little quiet plan that right up until today, I never have shared with anybody else. My plan was to work really hard on my letters. Then I could come back to the next appointment and be able to read more. And in return, I could make everybody happy. I honestly remember doing this. 
I remember going home and practicing my letters over and over, quietly by myself. The thing is, is that I really did know my letters very well. And, no matter how much I practiced, my next report really wasn't any better. It took me a while to realize that no matter how well I knew my letters, it wasn't going to positively affect this type of test. As the years went by, like any typical kid, I not only learned my letters, how to count, how to read and write, just as my peers did, but something in addition that I was learning on top of all of this was the ins and outs of the medical world. At a fairly young age, I could consistently, concisely articulate my particular diagnosis, what it meant in lay terms, as well as my current treatment plan, and various methods that have been tried in the past. For as long as I can recall, I've always found medical lingo completely fascinating. Initially, I would get so excited when I was able to unwrap a new medical word and piece together precisely what its meaning was. I remember this one nurse. I really wish that I could remember her actual name. I've thought about this scenario and her several times when I was frontline nursing. She was an OR nurse during one of my surgeries that I had when I was in grade 4, so I was around the age of 9. I remember her for two reasons. First, I was laying on a stretcher, sitting, waiting with my parents to get wheeled away to my pending operation. She came, introduced herself, and told us that they were ready for me in the OR. She went initially to go and unlock the bed brakes so she could wheel me away down the hall and into the OR. But instead, I remember her asking me, do you feel like going for a walk instead of a ride? Yes, I replied. I wondered if she somehow knew that that was one of the absolute worst parts of the whole operation. I hated getting wheeled away from my parents, trying not to cry, trying to smile so they wouldn't worry and look strong. Although being a parent myself now, I'm pretty sure that they could see through my wavering tough girl exterior. I remember hopping off the bed, giving my parents a hug and a kiss, and then feeling the warmth of this unknown nurse's hand in mine as she walked me down the hall and into the OR. I remember her complimenting me on my Tweety Bird nightgown that they agreed to let me wear into the OR. I had no idea though, as a nine-year-old little girl, that she probably didn't care all that much about my new pajamas, but rather it was a way for her to distract me. I have to say that I've used that memory with a slight modification several times, especially when I was in my pediatric oncology rotation. As a nurse, I was delighted even if I was able to temporarily remove some of the weight from those children simply by chatting with them. The other thing that I remember about that particular nurse still makes me smile today. I was all hooked up to the OR monitors when I was totally busted. I found it interesting that my heart rate changed in response to my breathing. I was laying there watching the heart monitor numbers while listening to the corresponding increased beeping when I took a breath in. The nurse was clearly busy setting up for the surgery, but she put her tasks on hold for a few brief moments while she stood there next to me and explained all of the values on the monitor to me. I was so interested and I remember trying to take it all in quickly before I fell asleep and the surgery began. 
As predicted, when I woke up, I was in recovery and I never did get to see that nurse again. But she most definitely had an ongoing impact in my life. I just wanted to say thank you to her for taking time out of her busy day and being so amazing to the nine-year-old version of me. Now, just because I was interested in the medical world and what was going on around me doesn't in any way mean that I was the smartest kid. I definitely had some bright ideas that were not the brightest. For example, does anybody remember when McDonald's made pizza? Well, I loved it. I clearly didn't have a refined palate that craved fine dining options. Anyway, a few days before the surgery that I just mentioned, I managed to convince my dad to pick me up a McDonald's pizza to eat when I was out of the OR. Sure enough, once I returned to my hospital room, my dad slipped away and returned with a fresh, piping hot McDonald's pizza for me. I remember being so thrilled. I also remember eating the pizza super fast and enjoying each bite, right up until I promptly puked it all up. Severe nausea and vomiting for me is what follows having anesthetic. I don't know how I thought having a greasy McDonald's pizza was going to be the key, but that memory still to today makes me giggle. So just curious, how many of you remember doing the dreaded CTBS tests in elementary school? Well, I do. For those of you who have either blocked this from your memory or didn't have the pleasure of completing CTBS tests, it was a standardized test that I recall having to take alongside all of my peers. I remember all of us hating this. These time-sucking, mind-bending tests were performed every year via a massive multiple-choice booklet. Alongside the booklet, you received a scannable answer sheet that ran into the hundreds. We had to indicate each answer as A, B, C, or D. I typically finished the tests around the same time frame as all my other peers. However, one year, when I was in grade 6, I remember my teacher holding me back at the end of the day, telling me that she would like to speak to me. I was shocked and began to sweat because I was a rule follower who didn't typically get in trouble. After all of the other students had left the room, she started asking me how my eyes had been lately. I breathed a huge sigh of relief. I wasn't in trouble after all. My parents had always been really open with my teachers as I progressed throughout school regarding my health challenges. I then gave my teacher a brief clinical update on my vision, but to my surprise, it didn't end the conversation. My teacher then explained to me that I did very poorly on my CTBS test, which she thought was out of character. My fingers began to fidget as my face flushed bright red. She started to verbally ask me a few of the questions that I had gotten wrong on the written test. To both of our relief, I verbally answered them all correctly. It turned out once again that no matter how well I did know my letters, I really needed to be able to actually see in order to do well on this type of test as well. Despite moments of feeling disappointment or that I had let myself or somebody else that I loved down, when reflecting back now on my childhood, the feeling of happiness really does trump these emotions. I got dirty. 
I wrestled around with my brother. We played kick the can within neighborhood kids, and by no means was I defined by my life's obstacles. Looking back, yeah, I did have a little bit of a different childhood than some kids, but despite everything, in some ways, it was actually fairly typical. My parents didn't go around making excuses for me, and they most definitely didn't make me into a bench warmer. Instead, they taught me to just be careful, and they likely held their breath a lot while they watched me maneuver my way through what we refer to as the innocent years of childhood. Today, I thought it'd be really interesting to have a conversation with somebody who's been part of my vision journey right from the very start. So I decided to invite my amazing pediatric ophthalmologist, Dr. Ken Romanchuk, to come and have a chat with me today. I have a lot of admiration and respect for Dr. Romanchuk, and I consider this a very big privilege to have him part of my podcast. I'm very excited to introduce one of my biggest heroes, Dr. Ken Romanchuk. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Becky. So my first question is, I've often wondered why you decided to become a pediatric ophthalmologist. Well, I always liked pediatric ophthalmology during my residency training, but I also uh, wanted to do a year of post-residency training, uh, which is called a fellowship in cornea because we're lacking in corneal expertise in Saskatchewan at that time. So the uh, College of Medicine, University of Saskatchewan, offered me what was called a McLaughlin Fellowship, and they offered funding, um, not excessive funding, but uh, funding for one or two years of post-residency training, and I was obliged to return to the university. So the Department of Ophthalmology in Saskatoon wanted a pediatric ophthalmologist, and I wanted to do cornea. So we decided uh, it was a win-win if I did one year of pediatric ophthalmology and one year of cornea, and there it goes. My second question is, how hard was it on you to have to, at times, give a really challenging diagnosis? It's very hard, uh, Becky. During my medical school training and residency training, one thing I, I learned, you have to be compassionate. We were always taught uh, to remain emotionally separate from the patient. Uh, you can imagine uh, if you're interviewing a psychiatric patient with depression, um, if you became very emotionally corrected, uh, you would probably start crying too and become depressed. So we always knew that you you have to remain emotionally detached, but that's a little bit different than showing compassion uh, when you deliver a bad diagnosis, um, saying that you understand the effect this may have on the family and the patient, and then discussing the situation and possible future scenarios. But it, I have to say it is hard. Um, some days I'd go home because I knew I did, I did well or did good. I guess that's the best way to say uh, for many patients. But other days I'd go home and my wife uh, understood that uh, maybe I wasn't depressed, but um, didn't really feel about speaking about certain things. And that was because often I had to deliver bad news to the patient and their family. What is something that you are most proud of that you're able to accomplish or do within your amazing career? Well, it was interesting. When I first started my career, I did both pediatric ophthalmology and corneal transplant surgery. And I did corneal transplant surgery for about 11 years because I had always 
offered our residents that if they went away like I did and did training in either subspecialty, uh, if they returned, I would give up that portion of uh, subspecialty that they had been trained in. So as it turned out, um, two went away and came back with corneal training. Uh, so I gave up the corneal part of my practice. I think it was 1992. So that was one thing I was proud of, that um, we actually had residents coming back with subspecialty training and tra uh, staying in Saskatchewan. The other thing is just uh, training residents. When I started back in practice in 1981 in Saskatchewan, Becky, there were only 12 and a half ophthalmologists for a population of about a million people. And probably only half of those were uh, locally trained. So we were depending upon foreign physicians quite heavily. Uh, when we actually looked at our residency and made some changes, um, we started to have uh, local med school applicants as well as other applicants from other Canadian medical schools. They uh, trained with us and then they often stayed in Saskatchewan. So when I left Saskatchewan at the end of 2005, I think we had uh, 28 ophthalmologists and about three quarters of them were locally trained uh, in Saskatoon. Uh, and many of those went on to fellowships, but came back to practice in Saskatchewan. And when I look back in my career, that's probably the most important. I've spoken to many of our former residents over the years, and they realized um, if we didn't have a residency program in Saskatchewan, many of them would not have been able to um, take ophthalmology training. The second big thing in my life really was when I came back to Saskatchewan to do corneal transplants, we did not have an active eye bank. And fortunately, within a year, due to a citizen that had to go outside of Saskatchewan to have a corneal transplant, and due to the Lions Clubs, we started an eye bank initially in Saskatoon, but uh, then also we opened a branch in Regina. And this really made... Uh, access to corneal transplants possible in Saskatchewan. And I, I always thank that individual and the Lions Clubs of Saskatchewan uh, for their support, because without that, uh, we would not have had an eye bank and people would still be going outside of Saskatchewan for, for treatment. And then the, the third thing is, when I um, went to the United States for my two fellowships, we really saw the best of medicine. In some respects, you also saw the worst of medicine if you didn't have insurance. But uh, there was often equipment that we required in Saskatchewan. And over the years, um, through uh, donations uh, from private donors, usually through the hospital foundations, but also support from the Lions Clubs of Saskatchewan, and I should mention the Odd Fellows and Rebecca's of Saskatchewan, we were able to get uh, up-to-date equipment, which really made treatment uh, easier and more effective uh, for many, many patients in Saskatchewan. So those are probably the three things I uh, remember most. And my last question, honestly, is fueled a bit by curiosity. What was something that stood out about me as one of your clients? Well, there were several things. Uh, I have to say you were very intelligent, as were your, your parents. Uh, you were very brave, and uh, you were very determined. 
Um, the intelligence really came out when we did have discussions between you and your family. I suppose when you're a, a child, you were so involved, but as you became older, you, you really did become involved in your own treatment, asking questions and asking what would happen if we didn't uh, perform certain treatments, etc. I remember your braveness, because you may not remember, but uh, to try to remove the calcium buildup on your cornea, we used a solution called EDTA, and this involved putting in uh, topical anesthetic drops and then uh, really dropping this solution with an eyedropper onto your cornea, uh, watching the calcium dissolve, but also helping the, the process by scraping it. And I have to say, it's uh, despite the topical anesthesia, it's an uncomfortable procedure. It's amazing to watch on the other end when you see the, the calcium dissolve. But you were very, very uh, brave in doing that. Even at times, I knew it hurt, but you uh, stopped, sort of recomposed yourself, and uh, we continued on with the treatment. The um, determined aspect, uh, I have to say, faced when I first saw you, you really only had one uh, good seeing eye and uh, you were determined to make the most of your, your situation. And over the years, we've kept in touch and you've gone through some, uh, almost all the serious eye diseases that one can, can go through, uh, yet you were determined <laughs> to have a, a good outlook on, on this and really not to let this get in your way to have a, a full and fulfilling life. So um, that that's what I remember mostly about you. And that brings us to the end of this episode of The Blind Reality. I'd like to thank my amazing pediatric ophthalmologist, Dr. Ken Romanchuk, for coming and chatting with me today. And I'd also like to extend a big heartfelt thank you to him for all the amazing care and attention that he provided to me over the years. As always, I'd like to thank my family as well for their continued love and support. This episode was written and produced by me, Becky Zar. Technical production was provided by AMI-audio's Nisreen Abdel-Majid. And the manager of AMI-audio is Mr. Andy Frank. Remember, until next time, if you need a hand, get it. If you can give a hand, give it. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.